Hey Insider, we've got a very special episode today with a fellow Success Insider. His name is Ryan Dice. Ryan Dice is the founder and CEO at Digital Marketer and also the founder of Native Commerce. His companies have collectively done over $100 million and he is on path right now to making his first billion dollar company. If you're somebody right now inside there who wants to become a successful online entrepreneur, you're going to find this episode particularly helpful as the golden gems are spread throughout this interview will help you to gather the knowledge you need to become successful online. Without further ado inside there, here's a special episode with a fellow success insider called Ryan Dice. Hope you enjoy it. Right. So you're mentioning in terms of you got into the world of the internet marketing and you saw the opportunity. Now, I suppose a lot of people now they see the opportunity and yet they don't achieve sometimes the results that they want to get. So what do you think you did differently in terms of you seeing the opportunity and just going forwards towards that? What was it that made you successful in some of the ventures? Well, I think the first thing is I, 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 I did stuff. Uh, I, I think a lot of people... Um, they think they're doing business by, uh, by learning, which learning is great. Obviously I'm not saying don't learn. I mean, I'm glad people are watching this right now, but there are some people who believe that what they're doing right now, as they watch this, that that in and of itself is entrepreneurship, that that is business. It's not, I'm sorry. Um, it's, it's important. It's critical. Even you have to know what you're doing, but at some point you have to go out there and execute. You, you have to do stuff. And, um, you know, when I got started, thankfully there weren't the number of distractions, positive and negative. Uh, and I just had to make money. I mean, I just had to, like, if I, if I didn't, it was going to be hard for me to pay rent, to, to pay for my tuition. Um, my first, you know, you've probably heard the story. If you've been to TNC, um, you know, I wanted to buy an engagement ring for my, you know, then girlfriend, now wife of 15 years, you know, I, I, I needed it to work. So I, so I did it. And I think that's the first thing is just recognize that until you get out there and you actually start doing business, you know, creating offers, building pages, launching products, selling stuff, until that happens, you're not an entrepreneur. You're a student. And, and nothing wrong with being a student, but students generally don't get paid. Students pay. Um, so if you want to be an entrepreneur, you have to go out there and do stuff. And, and I never would have learned if I hadn't also done. Uh, so that was the first big thing. The second, I think, big difference maker for me is I, I really, uh, I dedicated myself to learning uh, salesmanship and learning copywriting. Um, at a time where even then it was very easy to get distracted with the latest and greatest, uh, trick or hack today. It's even more distracting. There's way more ways that you can, you know, bandwagons that you can jump on tactics that you can chase, um, you know, momentary inefficiencies, whether it's, you know, in the early days, it was Google, you know, trying doing things to optimize for Google. And then it became, you know, how do we, uh, how do we arbitrage clicks? And, and then it became, um, you know, Facebook came along and that was very, very easy. Now there's a lot of people wanting to do things at Instagram. There's always going to be that trick or hack that's going to exist for a moment. And I can't tell you how many people I saw over the years. I mean, I've been at this for a long time. How many people I saw come out of nowhere, make a big splash, generate a lot of revenue, and in many cases build a pretty decent business. And then as soon as that little hack, as soon as that trick, uh, as soon as that, that inefficiency closed on them, they didn't know what to do. And so I think if you're going to really get great at, at one thing, if you're going to focus in on one thing, get really great at writing copy, at creating offers, because that's always going to work. It'll work even if the internet goes away. If you can create great offers, if you could put out a message and find a, a product that somebody really wants to buy, um, you'll never be poor. 
Right. Would you say you had a lot of luck at the start in terms of your early ideas? Were they mostly successful? Or did you experience some failures during the early stages? Yeah, I mean, I'd say I had a lot. Of, I'd, I'd say just, um, you know, being born at the time that I was born in was pretty lucky. You know, I mean, the fact that um, the fact that I, I started university in 1999, I think the year prior to that at the University of Texas was when they put high speed Internet in all the dorms. You know, so had I started just a couple of years earlier, the internet itself wouldn't have been the opportunity. So yeah, I think anybody who doesn't um, admit a little bit of luck, who's been successful is not being entirely honest. So certainly I was lucky. Um, what was interesting were the things that didn't work out that I considered unlucky at the time that wound up being lucky. I'll give you an example. Um, my first business was actually doing web design. Um, uh, I didn't know how to I didn't have anything to sell. I didn't have any products or anything like that. So I was going to do what a lot of people really should do, which is sell services. If you don't have a product to sell, sell your own time, you know, sell your own knowledge, sell, sell, sell your own sweat. It's a great way to learn. It's a great way to, um, to, to get started. And so that's what I did. I was like, I'm going to learn, learn web design and I'm going to sell those services to other people. Of course, nobody wanted to hire me because I didn't actually know how to do web design that well. I got one woman who was a lactation consultant. Do you know what that is? So a lactation consultant, helps um, uh, new mothers breastfeed, helps them. Nice, interesting. You know, yeah, so that's, so I mean, having four kids now, I completely see the value in this and it's, you know, it's great and it's a wonderful service. Um, but as a 19 year old, it was weird to be building websites for lact lactation consultants, <laughs> let's just say, right? Long story short, she wasn't able to pay me. Her husband lost her job, she had to go back to work, she wasn't able to pay me. Um, but one thing that, that we worked together to produce was this, this ebook. It was just a PDF on how to make your own baby food. Um, you know, she, she figured, and rightly so, that once she kind of taught mothers how to, how to breastfeed, uh, and then later on when the kids, you know, were weaned and they were eating solid foods, she still wanted to be relevant. Really, really smart lady, really, um, really sharp, really ahead of her time, and seeing, seeing the, the importance of wanting to create even an information product, right? I mean, again, this was 1999, how incredibly thoughtful of her. Um, but when, when she wasn't able to pay me, she said, look here, just take the ebook. Maybe you can sell it and make some money. I'm thinking, the heck am I going to do with this ebook, right? Really, really, really bad luck. Um, but then just out of desperation, I said, well, let's see if anybody will buy this. And uh, so I put up a simple little one page website. Um, I, I uh, optimized it for AltaVista and some of the other early sites. I remember when GoTo.com came around and, and clicks were really inexpensive. I bought some clicks to it. And I remember when I made that very, very, very first sale, waking up in the morning and thinking, oh my gosh, somebody gave me money. Somebody gave me $14 for this PDF. You know, wow, this, this works. And that kind of began, uh, began that journey. But uh, I would say in the early days, you know, if I tried 10 things, one or two of them maybe would work, you know, and that's probably a little bit of, you know, revisionist, you know, history. I'm sure there are lots of things that I tried that failed miserably and, and forgot about. Um, I think Harvard did a study, Harvard Business Review did a study. And they talked about what is the ultimate defining characteristic of business that businesses that succeed. And they found it wasn't really, you know, the track record of the founder, how much money they raised or, or their timing. It came down to, um, did they run out of money? And what, what they essentially realized is people, if, if they just will try enough times, eventually figure it out. Some people get lucky in the first thing works, but really the people who have multiple successes are the ones who it, it doesn't work the first time. 
because they have to try and try and try again. And that's where you start to notice different pattern recognitions. And, um, and so I, I would just encourage people, um, you know, it, it's back to what Thomas Edison said, right? I haven't, you know, f- you know, failed 187 times. I figured out 187 ways that it won't work. There's a lot of learnings in there. Failure is a really phenomenal teacher. Success is a terrible teacher. And um, so I'm, I'm thankful for some of those early failures and what they taught me. So from what you now know in terms of, I suppose, the failures as well as successes you've had, when do you define a business that needs to be kind of dissolved or left behind for you to focus on something that matters? How do you define that? Because you've gone through a lot of different ideas. So what made you say, oh, I'm going to leave this one and just do another thing now? Yeah, so I mean... I've never really had to, and I think this is, um, this is something a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with because they, they attach their identity to this business, right? So if it fails, then it means that they're a failure. Um, I never really saw it that way. For me, it was an idea. And if this thing didn't work, well, I didn't have to like take it out back and shoot it. Um, I would just go and look for the next idea. So there've been, you know, numerous ideas that I tried and then I stopped because it wasn't working and I, I ran out of ideas. And simultaneously, um, a better idea came along. I said, I'm going to focus on this. And there were some ideas that we've, you know, turned back around and said, let's try that one again. Uh, and there are some that are just still sitting on the shelf. So I really think it's, it's very practical. It's, I can't come up with any other ways to make this work. Um, and then you have to ask, yourself, do I have any other ideas that I'm more excited about right now? And if the answer is yes, go do that. Um, if the answer is no, and this is the only thing that you really have going, um, then I think what you need to do is you need to open your eyes, start looking for a business partner, uh, somebody who does have some of those fresh ideas, who can bring a, a new perspective, who can fill a gap um, that, that, that you have. And if you find that person and you can get them excited about it, then great. And if you can't, then you're out of ideas on that one. Go, go find something else. Um, but don't decide like this failed, therefore I'm a failure this didn't work out. So I'm going to try something different. It's just about the stories and the narratives that we tell, uh, that that we tell ourselves. So to me, I'm not done with an idea ever, ever. I have businesses that still, that I started forever ago that I still own the domain names. I still renew them. Um, and and I believe that one day they may, they may come back around. They may have their time. And do other people manage that for you or you just kind of just keep on the back burner sort of thing? Well, there's not really much to manage um, for, for a lot of these because they never really got any traction. I think maybe that's, that's a good way to look at it, right? If you have a business that never really got traction, mm-hmm. right? Putting it on the shelf, putting it on the back burner, you know, hitting the pause button, whatever analogy you want to put on is, is really pretty simple. You don't really have any customers. There's not much to do. Um, you know, maybe you cancel any subscriptions that you have related to that so that it's not continuing to cost you money, but really just letting it sit there, uh, you know, as an asset, it's a bit like buying a piece of land with the intent to develop a, you know, an apartment complex or something. And then, you know, the funding for the apartment complex falls, falls apart, but you still keep the land. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the way that I think about it. So um, as long as the carrying costs aren't, on it, aren't too much, then, um, then, then yeah, you just, you keep it and it doesn't require a whole lot of management. You're literally just renewing domain names and things like that. Maybe, you know, keeping some hosting accounts, you know, around. I think that's, you know, I think that's fine where it can be a bit more challenging, which I think is where your question was getting is, you know, what do you do if you've launched a business and got some traction, you have some customers and now it just isn't working. Is that safe to say? Yeah. Yeah. So when that happens here, here's what I would say. All businesses work 
at some cost basis. Meaning all businesses work, all businesses can be profitable if expenses are low enough. Um, I'll give you, you familiar with the company Motorola? Yeah. Okay, so Motorola, um, back in the late, mid 90s, I think they decided they wanted, they, they wanted to launch this satellite phone. It was called the Iridium satellite phone. Have you seen it? Do you, no. You're probably not old enough to remember it, but, um, but it, was this, it was this phone. This was kind of pre the dominance of cellular technology, right? And it was this phone that was just a giant brick of a phone and it had an antenna on it about the size of a baby's arm, but you could pretty much take it anywhere. And that was their whole point. Now, the issue with this phone is if you were going more than about, you know, 50 miles an hour, it would lose signal. Um, it was ridiculously heavy. The battery life was obscenely short. Um, and they, but unfortunately they spent like a half a billion dollars launching satellites and launching this program. It was a massive catastrophic commercial failure. By the time they got this thing launched, you know, cell phone technology had improved enough that you really didn't need a satellite phone because you could pretty much get decent cell coverage almost anywhere you needed it. And it was a massive failure. Well, they, they went and they actually sold that company. Um, at a, at, at a significant loss. I think they sold it for $80 million, which was kind of just what the satellites orbiting around planet Earth um, were worth. The company that bought it repositioned it as a business um, selling emergency phone service to these big, um, you know, tankers that are crossing the ocean, um, these big like cruise line, like things that'd be out in the middle of the ocean that they're not moving very fast. They don't need a phenomenal battery because they're not used very often. I mean, truly, they're only used for emergency purposes. And that business was very, very, very profitable. So it was profitable at an $80 million cost basis. It simply wasn't profitable at a half a billion dollar cost basis. So if you are running a business and it's, it's not quite working, you got to look at your expenses. You know, how much are you taking out? Um, how much are you spending on different things? And maybe what you need to do, and I've had to do this before, and it sucks. Um, I mean, I've had to walk into a building and I've had to let people go because we were going to be unable to make the next round of, uh, of payroll. You know, we've had to reposition companies that we thought were going to be really, really big and, and realize that they're not going to be that big, you know, that we need to, we need to bring them down. So that's difficult. And sometimes what you have to do is you have to sell to a competitor. You have to sell to, to somebody else who's willing to make those tough decisions. So um, it, it really is a lot better if you can have something fail right from the get-go then to have it start to go, um, gain some traction, do pretty well, and then next thing you know, you know, it's it's not making it at that level and you gotta reduce the cost basis. That's hard, that's hard. Right, so one of the things um, you, you were saying earlier is, is in terms of nowadays, there's a lot of ideas being chucked around, especially in the internet marketing world. And it's something that I do hear from a lot of our followers in, in the sense that they do feel overwhelmed um, mm -hmm. They're trying to manage the life and then the business, trying to get off the ground. But one guy is saying this, the other guy is saying this. And what you, if you were to give advice to somebody who's starting out in this area just from scratch, what, what would you say is the best thing to follow in terms of a strategy if there is such thing? Because there are so many different strategies in terms of what you could do to launch a business. So what would you say is your foundation that you want to build a business on? I always want to make sure that we're building a business. I mean, it, it's a, it's a really big question, right? So hmm. number one, I want to make sure that we're building a business in, uh, in a market where we have some type of advantage, right? I mean, there needs to be something going for us, whether it's, you know, a better product or, or we're able to, 
we have some marketing advantage of some sort. Uh, and, and then you really need to double down, you know, on that, on that particular thing. Um, so, and that really just comes down to, do I have a reason to exist in, in this space? Right. And am, am I bringing value over and above what's, you know, what's already there. And, and that could be because you have a better product. That could be because, uh, you have a unique perspective that nobody else has. Maybe, um, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that, that you shouldn't enter competitive markets by any stretch of the imagination, but there needs to be something that you're doing that everybody else isn't already doing, or you're just another me too. So that's kind of the, that's kind of the first thing. Um, then really when it, when it comes down to, uh, you know, when it comes, comes down to growing that business and what's the overarching strategy, step one is to get really crystal clear on what is the value that we deliver and how do we articulate that value. And so we, we have a very simple framework that we use a digital marketer. We call it the before and after grid. And we will literally, um, you know, on a whiteboard, we will, we will whiteboard out, okay, what is our customer's before state, right? What is their state before they meet us? What are, what are their frustrations, their fears, their anxiety, right? Why, why would they even be interested or open to a product or service like the one that we're asking? And, and we're going to plot that, right? What is their life like before? And then what is it like after, right? That's the first thing that you have to get really crystal clear on. That's, that's how you articulate value. Now, once you know that, the next thing that you have to say is we, we then begin to work backwards and we say, okay, so this is the thing that's valuable. This is, this is our, we call it a statement of value, right? This is, this is how we go about generating value on behalf of our clients. Now, what aren't, why aren't they going to believe this? If I were just to walk up to our ideal target market, perfect, you know, our perfect person, they're, they're sitting there, I'll walk up to them on the street, you know, and I say to them, hey, and I just utter out, here's what we can do for you. Why won't they believe that? Now, usually this is going to be because they have no idea who we are. No clue whatsoever. We have no brand equity, nothing. Or it's going to mean that um, they want to believe it, but they've been burned so many times in the past that, uh, that it just, you know, I mean, this is big. You were in the supplement space, right? This is really big in the diet space. You go to somebody, hey, I've got a way for you to lose, you know, 10 pounds in 10 days. They want it. Maybe they believe that you've done it. Maybe they believe that it's worked for other people. They just don't believe it's going to work for themselves. So once you've identified, okay, this is our thing. This is the value we deliver. This is how we transition people from less desirable before states to more desirable after states. Now you have to answer the question, what can we deliver in advance? What can we show them? What can we do for them that will make them believe that the statement is true? And more times than not, that's going to be in the form of content. That's going to be in the form of, you know, if you're selling an information product or something like that, maybe it's a webinar where you teach them something they didn't know. Um, it might be a demonstration, right, where you produce an amazing demonstration. Think about all the, you know, the, the, the products that are sold on TV, right, through short form infomercials. They're all demonstration based. But you've got to figure out because just saying, I know it works. I know it delivers value. I know when people use it, they're going to love it is not enough. It's essential, but it's inadequate. Right? Don't ever don't confuse those two things. It's essential, but it's inadequate. Now you have to ask answer the question: Why won't they believe this claim? And how can we prove it to them? And like I said, usually that that looks like some form of content. Maybe it's a video, maybe it's articles, maybe it's content that needs to be delivered over a long period of time. But then what you have to answer? So you you said what value do we deliver? Right? You've answered that. What won't they believe? And how how can we convince them to believe it? That's the second step. And then the third step. Uh, to that working backwards is how are they going to find it? 
How are they going to discover this? And that generally looks like some form of advertising. Now, the mistake that I see a lot of people make and the reason that marketing doesn't work for them is they do step one and they do step three. So they advertise to the third step. They advertise to the big claim. They advertise to the big promise. They advertise their big pitch. They advertise their product. And the problem is people see it and they don't believe it. So you've just spent money convincing somebody that, that, that yeah, they do have that problem, but that you're not, probably not the person to solve it. It's that, that, that middle step, that being willing to literally advertise to content, advertise just to deliver value. That's what we do today that nobody else does. I will buy a Facebook ad, for example, to, um, to a blog post. I will, I will buy a Facebook ad that, that will just have, that will just have great content inside, you know, a great video content inside that ad, not even an immediate call to action. For the people who click on that, for the people who watch it, then we will follow up, then we will retarget, then we will try to um, show them, you know, and, and explain, here's the good stuff that we can do for you, but not until we've gone first, not until we've reduced some of that doubt, not until we delivered some value in advance. And that's what branding is. That's what branding looks like. Branding means going first. Branding means delivering some value in advance. So that three-step process, and it, you need to work it backwards, your customers will experience it forwards. But what's the value we deliver and how do we articulate that value such that people go, oh my gosh, I want it. Then what do we need to show, do, or say to them uh, such that they'll actually believe that claim once doubts begin to set in? And then how do they become aware of it? How do they find it? Uh, that usually looks like advertising. Then every other little piece of marketing is simply accommodating uh, and, and optim accommodating for when things don't go the way you want it to and optimizing for when they do, right? So when we think about email marketing, email, email follow-up, right? Somewhere along the way, they're not going to buy, but we got their name email address. So we need to keep doing a little bit more of step two. They just need a little bit longer. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot of people who hit the page and they don't convert as much, right? So we're going to need to optimize the copy. We're going to need to do split testing and things like that. Um, there's tons and tons of ways to generate additional awareness. You know, so many aspects of, of marketing that are in and around awareness that until you optimize steps, you know, the steps one and two that we talked about, you don't even need to worry about. Why do you want to drive a ton of awareness until you know that you're overcoming main objections, getting people to believe, and then, you know, uh, and then selling them what they actually want. So I like to keep it simple and maybe it comes from my redneck roots um, but I like to keep it, uh, I like to keep it simple to those, those kind of three steps and, and where is it breaking down? And, um, and once I know where it's breaking down, then that will hone in on the tactics that I need to, to focus in on now. I can imagine a lot of people thinking, and I, I've also heard, uh, cause I've attended a lot of events before in terms of paid traffic in general, especially, uh, I remember hearing this concept from yourself in terms of retargeting them, you know, to content and retarget them to a landing page. I mean, that does require some form of expense. What would you say in terms of advice in terms of that? Because that, that requires you to almost let go of money in hopes that you will make money. So how do you know that firstly, it's going to be optimized well enough to return that profit? Or are you just going to spend money until you can optimize it till it does, if that makes sense? Like, because if you're on a limited budget, it's going to be quite a difficult task. It is. It's difficult and it's scary and it may not work. That's why, um, that's why you get paid the big bucks, right? Um, mm -hmm. I mean, if it were, if it were easy and risk-free people, you know, nobody would do it. Um, I'll, I'll answer the question, but I'll tell you 
that's the reason that um, I believe and if, and if somebody wants to be, you know, partner with me on a project, to me, it's not about how hard do you work or how smart are you? All right. I got lots of people that work for me. Um, they're brilliant people. Really, really, really smart. Hard workers have tremendous, have, have, have uh, you know, given mightily to the company. Um, I don't just give people equity in the business. To me, equity, ownership is a function of risk. So just accept that from the get-go. Like, accept that exactly what you said is true. Anybody who tells you that it isn't true is probably trying to sell you something. Because um, it is. I mean, it, it is true. You're going to have to make investments. It may not work. It, it you know, may pay off. That, that's, that's business, right? That's, that's just kind of how it works. Now, that's the bad news, all right? That's, that's the reality. How do you, you know, mitigate against it? You, you need to protect your downside. So when we go into a new market, we'll decide, here's how much we're going to spend on traffic over this period of time, and we're going to wait and see what happens. So today, when we enter a new market, that's about $50,000. So when we go into a new market, we're going to invest about $50,000 over about 90 days. We're going to spend a little bit less on the front end and then scale over those 90. We're going to invest about $50,000 over 90 days um, to drive, you know, to test different things, to drive people through, generate awareness, and then we're going to wait and see. And it's going to take about six months for us to really know, is this paying off? So $50,000 over six months. That's what it looks like today for us. When I first got started, it was $500. $500. I was going to give it about a week because $500 is all I had. My dad gave me an emergency credit card when I went to college. He said, this has a $500 limit. Only use it for emergencies. You know, if you're out of gas, anything like that, only use this for emergencies. Well, I decided that this was, you know, at 19, that this was an entrepreneurial emergency. Hopefully it would work out. If it didn't, I'd figure out a way to pay my dad back. Right. About $500 in advertising. Um, the next week I had made no money. The week after that I had generated enough leads, made some promotions that I had made a little more than $500 in sales. And I hadn't yet received that money, but when I received it, I said, great. Now this is, this is my working capital. I'm going to put all of this back in to scale and, and to more, you know, and, and, and into more testing. And that's how over time it's grown, right? So now our test budgets are much larger, not merely because we generate more revenue, but because we've been able to save more over time. You know, I'm not going out we hit it, hit it big, you know, have a nice launch, um, have a great, have a great sale. You don't see me out buying Lamborghinis, right? I'm reinvesting that cash um, in my business. I'll tell you cash flow management. If you want to be an entrepreneur, cash flow management, in addition to being a great copywriter is probably the second best skill to master, right? Making sure that you are effectively managing your, your cash is absolutely positively essential. But that's, yeah, that's what works. You got to have that budget, stick to it. Don't go over it. And, and sometimes wait and see, like, did it work? So you're saying uh, the number one skill is copywriting in terms of online marketing. Why would you say so? Because if you can write a great copy, you can find somebody to promote it for you. You can hire somebody to run the advertising. You can hire somebody um, to build, uh, you know, to build the website. Every, pretty much at this stage in the game, every aspect of marketing has become commoditized to some degree um, with the exception of copywriting and offer creation. That is still the one thing that there's not just people out there who say, yeah, that's what I do, unless just the top, top, top A-list copywriters 
Um, generally, they niche down into a particular industry. They're usually insanely expensive, like many six figures as just a retainer. Um, the, best, the best copywriters in the world, just frankly, like the best salespeople in the world uh, are going to make, you know, a million plus dollars a year working for somebody else. Right. And that's not uncommon. If you, if you're a top salesperson at Oracle or Salesforce or one of like the really big, massive companies, you're probably making more than, than the CEO is from their salary. That is not uncommon in the business space for the top salespeople to make more than the top level executives. Now the top level executives have a lot of nice perks. They generally have some, you know, stock options. There's lots of reasons that it's good to be them. Uh, the same is true in the, in the, in the marketing world, that's copywriters, that's offer creators. So getting great at that is, is I truly believe that is the number one skill. It will always work no matter what, uh, Changes, I mean, you know, different, you mentioned in the beginning video sales letters, right? I was just applying copywriting to a new media when it was ready. There's nothing particularly original about that. Um, you know, prior to that, we were putting it in long form. Um, and now, you know, webinars are really big. It's just good copywriting and offer creation put in a slightly different format. Uh, and, and, if, and if it changes, and, and again, if the internet were to go away tomorrow, um, and I, the only way I could market was through carrier pigeon. I, I like to think I'd figure out a way to make that work. Um, because at the end of the day, it's great offers that win. That'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? Carrier pigeons. <laughs> so yeah, I don't want that to happen, by the way. It's a <laughs> challenge I don't, I don't want to have to accept. I, I saw uh, one, one of your uh, products in terms of the update of ESL. It's more just talking, uh, what was it, just ca on the camera like this. Now, because webinars also becoming big, some, some webinar people tend to not even use many slides. So would you, say, would you say speaking is something that you find is useful in the world of marketing? Or do you think still copywriting is the foundation that everybody's just got to focus on in this day and age? It's a good, I mean, it's a good question. I think um, it still does come down to great copy. Um, when I am teaching, like what we're doing right now, and this obviously is unscripted, um, when I'm producing a sales video or a sales message that is scripted and I'm pretty good on camera. Like I've done it enough. I've had enough reps and sets, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good speaking, you know, I can go out there and I can, I can make it work. Um, but if I'm going to sell, I'm not gonna leave anything to chance. It, it is going to be scripted verbatim. Um, and, and if, and if I'm there, there's a teleprompter and I'm reading off of a teleprompter. So I think it's important because if you're a bad carrier for your message, um, then, then you're perceived as a bad guy and you can detract against your message. Um, but at the end of the day, it's a, you know, great speaking and, and oration and all those things. They're no substitute for a bad message. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So it, it's important, but I think one can absolutely be learned. Um, both, both, can be, both can be taught, both can be learned. I'm not, I'm not saying that you can't learn to be a great copywriter and offer creator. I, I think you know, if you just sit down and practice a talk enough, you can get pretty good at it. Same with a webinar. But if your offer sucks, it just sucks, right? It, it doesn't matter. Have, have the best, you know, you could have Martin Luther King reading your, you know, um, reading, reading it. It's, it's still going to be, it's still not going to be good. I, I will also say, um, you, you see more of our sales videos that we do today at Digital Marketer like this, right? Me talking to, to the camera, somebody from the team talking to the camera that doesn't actually get higher conversion rates most of the time. You know what still gets higher conversion rates? What's that? The ugly text video one. No way. <laughs> where it's just text on a screen. That oh. still gets higher conversion rates 
because there's nothing external to judge. There's no additional distraction. I mean, you're just focused in on the message. Um, the reader is creating pictures in their own mind of what's happening. You don't have to show it to them. It's actually way more effective. The downside is, is, is it's been so overused and it's been so overdone in a lot of different markets that we're in that for branding purposes and just to look different, we, we are accepting lower conversion rates for higher brand value. Mm. But make no mistake, it still works better. And, and in a lot of our markets, we still use the plain, ugly black text on a white background. I'm, I'm reading the words on a PowerPoint presentation as I click through the slides that, you know, that I started doing that actually still works better than just about anything else, which to me just shows the preeminence of messaging over delivery. Yeah, I think that's one of the things I found really unique about your company, Digital Marketers, is a lot of people in the intermarketing industry tend to go with, on Facebook especially, it's almost like Hollywood production, always mm -hmm. starting with a car, of course, and then walking out the car yes. and that sort of stuff. But you've always kind of maintained that brand of digital marketing, yet you're still successful with it. Now, are you eating up more cost because of that? Because you're not following the trends of people buying into that lifestyle sort of thing? Because sometimes I find you're not showing off the material, which some people kind of want, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, I mean, I, we haven't tested it, so I can't say that what we do works better. Um, I, I know that, that I've, I've seen that type of thing before, that, that lifestyle first. It's not new. People have been doing that forever. And I watch them come, and then I watch them go away. Um, because I believe that, um, that in business, if you're running a business, your job is the guide. You're the guide. The customer is the hero. Okay. Uh, my friend Donald Miller, he, he's the one that, that really articulated that, that thought to me. He wrote a book called uh, Building a Story Brand that I would commend everyone to read. But I've always, I mean, for me, it, uh, I'll be honest, for me, it wasn't strategic. I'm just an introvert and I'm shy. Uh, I, I have four kids. If I could do it all over again, you wouldn't see me anywhere. There's just no going back at this point. So I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a good enough spokesperson for, you know, for the brand. So I'm going to keep doing it, but I do it less and less and less. Now, what we found as a result of that is, and not being kind of a guru centric brand is that our, our audience has grown and people talk about us because now they're not saying you should go and follow this person. They're saying, this is the place that you need to go. Most people are not looking for a person. Most people are not looking for a guru. Um, at least not over time because people will always disappoint, right? Cults generally don't last for very long, right? What people are looking for is they're looking for a place. They're looking for a community. And if you go the guru centric route, if you go the lifestyle route, then, um, then I think you're going to get a lot of followers very, very, very quickly. Those followers are going to be very fickle though. And when they realize that you're not actually there to serve them when they realize that, that all the lifestyle stuff, they're actually kind of a pawn in your scheme. They're going to, they're going to run from you. Um, we've also found that, that if you pursue that type of thing, I don't necessarily want people who, uh, not that I don't want, that sounds, um, that sounds judgy or moralistic. I, I mean, I'm happy to take any and all customers. We're not targeting, um, a digital marketer people who want to start a business and make a bunch of money online. A digital marketer, we are, tar we are targeting professional marketers. Now this can be either, uh, because frankly, there's just a lot more of them and they also pay a lot more money, right? Mm -hmm. So as, as a practical matter, you know, we have large companies that buy multi-seat licenses to our training so they can train their marketing teams. Well, 
they'll pay a lot more than somebody who just, you know, really wants to go make a bunch of money, right? They, they just will. Um, they're, they're harder to sell to, uh, but, but they're definitely, they're definitely there. So a lot of it's kind of a, you know, a target, you know, market kind of, kind of, kind of piece that's, that's going on there. But it, it really does come down to, if you can establish a brand, it can be bigger than you. It can be sellable. Uh, it, it can be the kind of thing that can, that can take on a life of its own. It, it's harder to do. It takes longer. Um, and I don't think that, that having a personal brand, a guru driven brand and being a spokesperson for a brand, like what I do a digital marketer, they're not mutually exclusive. Steve jobs was a phenomenal spokesperson for Apple. Apple still was very much its own company. Uh, and so that's the way that I've always approached it. That, that's why I would encourage anybody who's getting started in business, be the best spokesperson your brand has ever known, but point at your brand, point at your company as being the source of wisdom, not, not you. Don't point at you. Point at, at, at your brand, be the guide, take on that role as a guide, and, and always point back to your customers and, and make it about them. Amazing. Yeah, I'm a big fan of, because uh, I saw him, uh, I heard him speak at TNC um, in terms of story brand. Really, really fascinating stuff. Uh, I love that speech. Yeah, Donald, Donald's great. Mm. So uh, one of the things we, we tend to have with our community, one, one side we've got some who really want to get out of their rat, their rat race and create a successful business. On the other side, we've got successful people who just tend to burn themselves out because they're just working so hard now, got, got the money, but they just keep on chasing more. And that's why they're so fascinated with habits uh, from anyone we, we bring on. So you're running a very successful company. Uh, do you mind asking me asking in terms of what's your current work hours right now? Are you a hustler or are you balancing this? How do you approach this right now in terms of work? This is, yeah, this is tough. Um, so because you mentioned the two types of entrepreneurs, right? Mm-hmm. The first type that's trying to get going and the second type that's, that's burned out. Yeah. Um, I think there's actually only one type and it's the second type. And the first one just hasn't gotten there yet. You know what I'm saying? Um, <laughs> it's, it's like, I, what is, I'll tell you what is, what is really, really. So you asked, uh, what are my, what are my work hours? Yeah. I generally work um, nine to five, except when it's, you know, five to nine. Um, I mean, I work my tail off, but it's not because I have this sense of like, you know, I, I got, I got to hustle and all these things. Um, the truth is I hit my number. You know, and, and I, I had a number in my head that I thought when I hit this number, you know, and it was basically set that I'd, that I'd be done. And I hit it and I was like, okay, I'm still having fun. <laughs> you know, I mean, so I think it's, to me, it's like, this is what I do. Now, it's not my identity, right? It's an aspect of my identity. If you pretend like it's not my identity, but like to me, I, I first and foremost, you know, I define myself as a child of God, as a husband of Emily, and as a dad to Jonathan, Joyce, uh, Ruth, and Timothy, right? So that's where I get to, that's where I get to, to stay. Like that's, that's the essence of my identity. But the thing I'm really, really, really good at is this. So, um, so for me, it's less about the hours that I work what, um, cause I, I work a lot, but what I want to make sure that I can do is I want to make sure I can take off in large chunks. So this summer and my wife and I took two weeks off and just went to Spain, right? That was fun. I want to make sure that I'm building something to where if I need to get away, you know, I can, um, I, I have a beach house. So we'll, you know, we'll take a long weekend and, and go down, you know, go down to the beach for, for me, it's about making sure I don't miss kids, you know, sports games or dance recitals and things like that. Um, so it, it's more about that and less about, you know, how much am I working? 
Um, and then when I am working, am I doing the work that is fun and that I'm really, really good at? We are right now about to launch a brand new startup because I just hate sleep apparently. And I just can't not, but we're launching a brand new startup in the, uh, in the corporate learning space. Um, and it, you know, it, every time I have to remind myself like, crap, that's right. This is really hard. You know, each time I go back and, and do one of these things. So I'm, I basically have two, two jobs. I mean, I'm dual CEO at digital marketer. The team there is great. I, I, I have very, very little that, that I have to do from a management um, standpoint there. I'm mostly um, creating content, helping with offers, things like that. And then I'm also CEO of, of Praxio, which is the, the new startup. And then I'm on the board of a number of other companies that, that we own. Most of those don't require any of my time, but this thing startup, it's killing me. I mean, I got to write an onboarding series and that's been on my to-do list for like two weeks. You know, it's hard. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I generally work a full workload. Um, I, I work more than the vast majority of the people here. I'm not a lifestyle uh, entrepreneur, but I'm not a lifestyle entrepreneur by choice. And that, that's the decision that I make. I'm not saying that everybody has to be like this. There's anything wrong with the other one. I just know I can only hang out on a beach for so long. And when I got four kids, I'm not going to go live the nomad lifestyle. Mm. Do you have any specific rituals that you tend to do in the morning or evening that tends to fuel you for the rest of the day? Um, I'd love to say that I get up and, and I, I follow this exact routine. And I meditate for 15 minutes and then I go to the gym and all that stuff. Um, I read about those. Um, I know <laughs> okay. people who've written those posts on medium. I know most of them are totally full of crap. Like they did it for a little bit and then it kind of, and then it kind of fell apart. So um, you know, I, and not, not that it's bad and not that you shouldn't try to do it as often as possible or have a routine. My, my general routine is, um, I want to make sure that the night before I have decided what my big three things that I want to get accomplished, uh, are, are going to be, uh, I am very deliberate with my schedule. Uh, and so I make sure that, that my days are generally blocked out and then I will slot in. Um, if I know what my big three are, I'm going to slot in time to work on those. I call those focus blocks. And every day, my goal is to have one one-hour focus block, just one. If I can fit in one one-hour block, then I know that that one block is oftentimes going to turn into two or three. And a lot of times, it's only one. But if I can just get one in, I mean, truly, if I can work five focused hours a week, I can accomplish a ton. And, and I'll tell you, it is rare when I get that done. It is rare. And a lot of times if I go and I work, work on a weekend, it's because I didn't get my blocks in and I want to make sure that I, that I get those in. So, um, so the biggie for me is just decide the day before the big three that I want to get done. Make sure that on, on Sunday night, I, I do, I, I say, what are my big three for the week? And then I make sure that those are slotted in, in my calendar. Cause you can have a to-do list all you want. If it doesn't live on the calendar, at least for me, I know for a fact, it's not going to get done. Um, so it's one thing to put on to-do list is another thing to say, and this is when I'm going to do that thing. This is when I'm going to carve out that time. And then every morning I wake up, I review my goals that I have for that particular season uh, to make sure that I, you know, that, that I stay in line and in check with those. Uh, I review my big three for that day and I review my calendar and I make sure that, that does my calendar align with my, with my big three? Does my big three align with, with my goals? I feel like I'm making progress towards um, the long-term goals. And as long as those are happening, then, then, then it's, it's pretty much, uh, that's, that's usually about the best that I do. Nice. How do you define your big three in terms of the week and the days? So the, the big three for a given week um, is going to come out of, out of the goals. So what I do at the, every December, 
um, I take a couple of days to really sort of reflect on the, on the past, um, on the past year. One of the things that I, and I, and I use it as an opportunity to just be really hard on myself. Um, like just to be really brutally honest and mean and like you're a loser cause you didn't get this done and did it. And then I kind of get that over with, but I feel like you have to do business with the past, right? And you have to either, you know, forgive yourself or, um, you know, and reset or kind of reconcile that like, yeah, this is why it happened, but you got to do business with the past. Then I say, okay, in light of this, in light of the past and in light of what I want the future to be in light of everything that I learned, uh, in light of newfound assumptions, right? Um, sometimes we, we assume things to be true and they wind up not being true. We don't adjust our goals, even though our assumptions have changed. That's crazy. Can't do that. Um, then I decide what my, my big goals are going to be for the year. And I make sure that I have personal goals. I have professional goals. I have health goals, spiritual goals, you know, all those usually between six and 10 a year. Um, and I want to try to really, you know, you know, not, not necessarily pursue, some of them are kind of more habit goals. And so I'm pursuing those throughout the year. It's just an aspect of what I'm doing, whether it's, you know, exercise or drinking water, something like that, you know, you can kind of factor that in, but if it's a really big project goal, I want to make sure in a given quarter, I, I generally don't have more than one, maybe two of those. And so I'll just kind of decide when are those going to be sometimes it's dictated by the, you know, by, by the seasons. Uh, and, and then if I know what that's going to be for that particular quarter, then it's easy to work backwards in a given week and say, okay, what can I do this week? That's moving me towards my, my, my long-term goals. And, um, some weeks it's nothing. Some weeks you've got obligations and commitments and you're not going to make anything, you know, happen that week. And that's a bummer. That's frustrating. Or some weeks you're taken off and so you're not going to do it. But, um, you know, but, but I'll look at the week and then I'll kind of say, okay, for the day, what needs to happen today to make, to move things forward in that week. And so that's how it kind of breaks up. So it starts for the year, goes down to the quarter, goes down to the, uh, to the week, and then it goes down to a given day. So nowadays, what, what does, uh, what actually takes your time in terms, is it, are you actually hands down kind of getting dirty in, in, or are you more strategy? Are you just thinking? What, what's important for you during a work week? Because of this new startup, there, there's a lot of heads down, just like writing copy. Um, I am actually, uh, I'm actually doing um, sales and prospecting. So I'm, I'm sending out emails and, and having a lot of customer conversations because uh, I need to know what do people want? It's a big mistake that I see marketers make and, and entrepreneurs. They feel like they're like above talking to their customers. They're above making sales. You know, when digital marketer pivoted into the certification space, mm. um, this was at TNC, I think three years ago. Uh, I kind of announced that we were doing this thing. I said, it's not quite available, but if you're interested and you want to talk about it, please come back to the digital marketer booth. Uh, I stood at the digital marketer booth for an entire day, arranged the speaking schedule. So I only spoke that one time in the morning. And stayed in the booth the entire day and just talked to people, talked to people and heard like, what are the possible use cases? Who, who am I talking to? Who's interested? Who's like, oh, that's nice. You know, and, and in that day, gathered more information than I really probably needed and was able to immediately go and write, uh, you know, and, and, and write copy for it. So I'm doing a lot of that right now. And that's not normal in terms of what I would typically be doing as a CEO of digital marketer, where my only you know, my only gig, a lot of what we're doing is, um, you know, as a CEO, you're dealing with people. So hiring is a big aspect of it. Um, cash flow management is a big aspect of it. How, how are we going to deploy our cash, you know, to meet our goals? But the, the, the number one thing is, is you mentioned strategy. We call it gap planning, right? So we're going to decide 
um, uh, we, we, um, we'll, we'll set a goal, whether it's for a quarter or a six month goal. We're generally working in three to six month goals, three to six month timelines. And, um, so it's evaluating those and saying, how are we doing to that goal? How are our lead measures? Um, looking the, the book, the, the process we go through is we didn't invent it, it's four disciplines of execution. Mm-hmm. Um, another book I would commend entrepreneurs to read. So we follow that methodology. We establish a wildly important goal back into lead measures. So I'm, I'm looking at the lead measures, seeing how are we progressing towards those goals? And then I'm doing gap planning. So if I'm finding that we're coming up short, then I'm going in and, and working with the, the teams who maybe own a metric um, that's coming up a little bit short and figuring out, okay, how, how can we improve this? Uh, and sometimes it's me diving in and, you know, personally and fixing something that's broken or, you know, improving some copy more times than not, what it's doing is saying, okay, I'm going to go and research, you know, some better technology solutions, or I'm going to free up some capital so that we can make an investment here. Or, you know, obviously this is missing because we need to make a hire. There's a critical hire that we're missing. So, you know, how do I go and do that? Or I'm going to pick up the phone and try to try to call somebody who I know who's in my network, um, who might know the answer to this question. Um, and so that's the whole thing. Yeah. You know, gap planning. Another, another book that I would commend all entrepreneurs to read and marketers in, in particular is the goal. Um, the goal. Are you familiar with that book? I've, I've heard you talk about it actually. Uh, the goal. Yeah. 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 So the goal is about theory of constraints. It was written as a manufacturing book, basically how to, how to make manufacturing lines more efficient. Um, mm. But the same rules also apply to making customer journeys more efficient. Right. So, looking at the process and figuring out, okay, we're getting a lot of traffic. We're getting a lot of signups. Things are converting pretty well. Once we you know, get people into a demo, once we get them into a trial, we're just not getting a lot of people who sign up over here into a trial, right? There's a constraint. There's a bottleneck there. So it's digging in and figuring out how do we resolve that bottleneck? Uh, and I think CEOs, executives, they're uniquely qualified to do it. One, because they usually have more experience, more context, a better network, but they also just have the ability to say, okay, we're going to do this. And, and it may not work, but uh, if it fails, it's on me, right? So let's try this wild, crazy harebrained scheme, you know, and see if it doesn't work. Let's spend more money than we had originally had budgeted, you know, on going and getting a piece of technology or going and hiring a different person to see if that will work. And the frustrating and beautiful thing about it is as soon as you fix one, the rule in theory of constraints is it just moves. So this area over here that you fixed, it's not like, whoo. And now we're done. Now, as soon as you free up that bottleneck, as soon as throughput increases, you know, at that particular work center, it just moves somewhere else, right? Now you find like, oh, now this one's failing. And so then you got to go and do that. So most of my time is spent like hopping around really the customer journey, meeting with the teams who own a particular stage in the customer journey and trying to figure out um, how can I increase the capacity of that particular constraint, that particular throughput area. I think it's fascinating how you, still uh with with this new startup you're speaking directly with the customers yourself considering you know i'm sure you've got a lot on your plate so are you doing that because you want to know their language patterns and things like this or is there like a another specific reason that you're you're doing that for you you have to i mean most people start businesses because they're the customer right they're scratching their own itch and so you can kind of hack it a little bit by because because you sort of know like you know the thing that you need and you know generally you know the hot buttons to press because they're your hot buttons um i've gone into a lot of businesses and and whether we acquired a company or whether we decided to start it because we saw an opportunity where i wasn't the customer i didn't know um but even now i learned that my own hot buttons may not necessarily be 
or customers hot buttons. So now I have a rule. I'm going to talk to at least, at least 50 uh, potential customers. I'm going to have at least 50 of those. And I found in the first kind of 10 to 20, you think you generally know what's going on. Um, you think that you generally have a sense that, um, of, of what they want. But um, it really, it's not until you get into kind of the next 20 that the patterns begin to emerge and you start to see different avatars. Um, you know, for example, digital marketer, um, we serve marketers of all, you know, shapes and sizes. So that could be a founder who's marketing their own business or, or a, you know, a marketer at a particular company, um, you know, a startup type person. We also serve marketing executives, you know, somebody who's a chief marketing officer, VP of marketing, director of marketing, director of demand gen, um, you know, those kind of groups. And then we also serve agencies. Well, until you go and talk to these different groups, you don't realize that, that what they want are fundamentally different. The words that they use to describe those things are fundamentally different. Their use cases are fundamentally different. So you have to go and, and you have to have the conversation. It's like um, the example of, of the, like the five blind men trying to describe the elephant. Have you heard this before? Yeah. Yeah. And you got one guy's like, oh, it, it's, it's thin like a snake, right? Because he's pulling on the tail. Another guy's on the other side. He's like, no, it's wide and, you know, uh, you know, broad and wide. It's like, it's like a leaf, right? Because he's got the ear, you know, and another. So no, it's like a tree trunk, right? Because he's got the legs. You never quite know what you're looking at. Am I, am I looking at just a little sliver and I'm going to make all my decisions on this thing that could be an outlier or, or you know, it, it could be a local maximum or Am I, uh, am I getting a complete 360 perspective, right? Am I talking to as many people uh, and customers as possible? And I found that that's 50 conversations. So for me, it's, we're not going to enter into a business until the person driving the business who's going to be responsible for the P&L has done that. I would never invest in a company um, where the founder had not or was not willing to have at least 50 conversations. Um, and and uh, trade shows and events are a great way to hack that. Uh, it's why we sponsor a lot of events just to have conversations with, with people. Wow. Yeah, yeah, you have to have those conversations. There's a, um, uh, again, another book recommendation, Sprint. Um, it outlines in that book how to have customer conversations. We follow their methodology. And I think if you Google Sprint book, um, they have, or maybe it's like the sprintbook.com forward slash videos. I believe they have a video where they teach you exactly how to have those conversations. It's totally free. Just check it out. That's the methodology that, that we follow. But yeah, you, you have to do it. Um, I would love to think that I am, you know, that I'm above that, um, either because I'm so important or because I'm so smart, but I'd be fooling myself. And I, I know because I've watched me fool myself before. Amazing. Ryan, just want to say, uh, really, really appreciate your time today. Uh, so, so many different insights. Really glad uh, we made this happen. And thanks for coming on the show. If you were to leave everybody with uh, one final message we tend to wrap up every interview with this it's just kind of like some people them to take take home in terms of something to remember from this interview what would this one final message be talk to your customers uh, I, I will pick up right where we let where we left off before talk to your customers talk to them in the beginning talk to them during uh, once your business is running talk regularly. There's not a week that goes by that I don't have a sit down conversation with someone on our customer care team, with someone on our sales team. It's not a form that they submit. I sit down and I have conversations with them to say, what are our customers saying? Um, you live, your job is to serve. That is why you get paid, right? You get paid 
to serve. If you ever think that you are above talking to them, that is the day that your business will begin to die because you will deserve to die. Um, you will, you will, that is the day that you will cease to, um, to, to serve and put your customers first. So talk to your customers. I know that this is the digital era. I know it's the web. I know we don't want to do that. I know we want to automate everything and be able to sit back and not have to talk to anybody. Believe me, I know that. I'm an introvert. I don't like it either. I despise it, but you need to do it. Uh, talk to your customers. Amazing. Thank you so much, Ryan, for coming on. And inside, I just want to say thank you so much for tuning in today. Until next time, I'll see you on the next video soon.